0: great to have you here great to have the sun shining and um, glad to see so many faces that we don't know and if there's any if you're new here first second time and uh, there's a question we can answer just uh, find somebody around you if they don't know we'll find someone who does and um, if you are visiting let me tell you what we're doing this is the portion of our service where we uh, open God's word and um, hear from it, preach from it, and we've been going through the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, so we are past the halfway mark, starting to draw in toward the close of Revelation, and we're going to be in several batches this morning. This is a chunk of the book of Revelation. It takes up really all of 17 and 18 and even spills over into 19, so I've just taken some representative batches of those chapters, and um, if you don't have a Bible this morning, you can follow along in the bulletin. Let me say this before I read this passage, and uh, I I don't feel the need to say this every Sunday because the the text doesn't always call for it, but I definitely do this morning. I don't know that this text is rated R, um, but it may be rated PG, and we're going to just let it be what it is. Uh, As as I've said before in sermons, I don't want to try to be startling, and I certainly don't want to try to be more earthy than, uh, than the scriptures, more earthy than the text, but I don't want to be less earthy than the text, and as, as we've said all through this book of Revelation, this, this book, like the book of Daniel, is written in a genre that's called apocalyptic, and that genre really uses startling, just vivid, technicolor images. And the thing that I that I want you to think about this morning is that John is recording what God showed him. The reason that's so important is that what what we're going to read this morning this is not the apostle John he wrote Revelation. This is not him getting rhetorically overcharged and using, you know, uh, an inappropriate illustration or going too far to make a point. It's a big deal with John that God showed me these visions. God revealed Jesus Christ to me, and I recorded faithful eyewitness testimony. I'm a faithful witness to what I saw. That's big with John. So here's the takeaway. The images that we're reading are not of John's crafting. John is trying to faithfully record images that God crafted, and they're vivid. God is using an image that is all through the Scriptures, especially in the Prophets, to depict what worldliness is. And in particular, when God's people engage in worldliness, that rather than God be their spouse, God be their their love affair, God be the the romance and the love of their life, they go after something else. There's an image he uses for that. This morning, that's how God is going to depict worldliness and the allure of the world to John and to us. God loves the earth. God made the earth. God cares for the earth. But again, as Jake preached a couple of weeks ago, there's this term in the scriptures called the world. The world in the New Testament doesn't always equal planet earth. The world is a system. It's a global system that's in opposition to God and His people. We're about to see a vivid depiction by God of the world. We're going to begin in Revelation chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And this is following a text in which wrath has been depicted as seven bowls of different manifestations of the wrath of God have been poured out. Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. "...who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And it carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold." I marveled greatly. Later in chapter 17, verse 15. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out His purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Chapter 18, verse 16. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word right now, we would pause for a moment and once again would ask for your help. And we would thank you for recording for us what that man said, Lord Jesus, to you that day where you asked him if he believed. And he said, I believe, I do believe, help me in my unbelief. And many of us feel that this morning, that even those who would come saying, yes, I I do believe these things, I'm here because I do believe these things, but deep down we don't believe these things, and we are a crazy mixture inside, and so please help us Uh, open our eyes and our ears to hear and see truly, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. A couple of weeks ago, you probably saw this in the news. There was uh, there was some buzz in the news about the FDA had to had to change its recommended dosage of, uh, of of a drug, and it's the active ingredient in pretty much the most popular sleep medications in our country. And, uh, and it caught my my ears perked up because I've taken uh, taken one of these before. And uh, but but the deal was this is that they they Enough people had taken this over enough period of time and enough, you know, observation had taken place and and feedback from people's experience to realize that uh, apparently, especially with women, the recommended dosage um, could lead to altered states of consciousness when people were still awake. And uh, and, in the news that, you know, they were interviewing people and talking to people who had had experiences like, you know, I took this. And uh, I woke up and didn't know that I woke up, and I went out to eat at a restaurant and I have no recollection of it and that's that's not the way we want to do life or something worse and and um, so uh, so the FDA stepped in and, and, and tweaked it but but you know it' th- th- that 's amazing to think about that that folks who had experienced this had had they had gotten in cars you know and driven places and we're in an altered state of consciousness and didn't know it. This happens with other drugs, too. Uh, or, or, let's put it another way, you might be in the car looking over at that person in the other car and not know that person is in an altered state of consciousness right now. This text is depicting the effects of the world, and, and I, I don't want to just beat a dead horse, but I really want to be clear about this. God loves the earth. God made the earth in its beauty, in its variety, in its order, in its artistry. He, he, you know, Psalm 145 says he has compassion on all that he's made. And at the end of Revelation, there's a new earth. It's not a, it's not a different planet. It's a new earth. And we're going to hit that hard. But this earth is fallen. And, and part of its fallenness is this thing called the world. That there is this entire global system, all the people groups, all the ethnicities participate in it to resist God and His people. And and the depiction is this, is that the world gives to fallen people something that when they drink it, they're in an altered state of consciousness. I mean, it talks about, she gives a wine that makes you drunk, but you don't feel like you're drunk. Now, you you and I can feel like I'm making my decisions, I'm, I'm in control of my life, but we're in an altered state of consciousness. When God depicts the world or worldliness in these texts, at the, at the end of the Bible practically, <clears throat> she's called Babylon. That's very important. Because it says her name is Babylon, but she's Babylon, the mother of all prostitutes. What is that telling us? It's telling us that this is not fulfilled in any one city on the earth. You know, Rome would have been the obvious application when the first recipients of Revelation read these words. I mean, the obvious, glaring, blinking application would be the city and the empire of Rome. Now, Rome still exists, but it's a diminished Rome. But this found application before Rome existed, And it finds application today. And the takeaway application of it is not just one location. It's not just New York or Beijing or London last century or Rome in the first century. There have always been Babylons. She's the mother of all the prostitutes that manifest themselves all over the world. Okay, when God wants to show John and show us and show these early churches, what is she like? What images does he use? Could he use any image he wanted to? And here's the images he uses. She is a prostitute and she's a great city. Now I want to look at that. She's a prostitute and she's a great city. And again, it may be a little bit jarring to come to church and hear the word prostitute, prostitute, prostitute. But we, we, we've got to give this its due. This is a major chunk of this book. So let's try to get at least a, a, a 50,000 foot view. How is worldliness, how is Babylon a prostitute? Well, first thing, just look at the, look at the description. Verse 1. This angel, and this happens periodically in Revelation where an angel will come over to John. I, I guess the angel can see that John is just you know, slack-jawed and he'll say, let, I, let me walk you through what you're seeing. And so he says this, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Now then go to verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. And again, I don't want to be less earthy than scripture here. She's not a cheap prostitute. Very alluring. Very exotic. Very wealthy. Purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead, we've seen that a lot, marks on the forehead, was written a name of mystery, Babylon the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, why prostitute? Okay, a couple of things to think about. First off, prostitutes are found in all cultures. They're found in all cult- They're not unique to any one continent or any one time. And some people call it the world's oldest profession. That's not true. Gardening would be the world's oldest profession. But it's, it's old. And, and it's been, uh, it's been everywhere. Look at what it says, chapter 17, verse, uh, verse 15, after that first paragraph break. Do you remember it said, when it, when it describes her, that she's sitting on this beast, but she's also sitting on many waters. That's the first thing it says about her. She's sitting on many waters. And then the angel explains that, verse 15. The angel said to me, "...the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages." You find actual prostitutes everywhere. And you find the effects of what she's done in her allure everywhere. You know, we, we've, we've seen that bundle of terms all through Revelation. People, tribes, nations, languages. All of them know her. All of them have been sort of captivated by her. Okay? So she's everywhere. But, 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 and maybe this is just the, the same point said in a different way. Prostitutes appeal to a desire that is so deep that people will engage in high-risk behavior. Now, prostitution is expressed differently in different areas and it's, it's, it's regarded as good or bad on different scales in different cultures, but pretty much people know this is not the ideal way to do life anywhere you go. But the industry remains because that industry taps into a desire that is so deep that people will engage in high-risk behavior. God takes that industry, that profession, and says, first off, that's what the world is like. That's what worldliness is like. Now, Hang on to that. The second image is that it's the great city. And this is repeated. Look, up, look in chapter 17, verse, verse 18, after that first paragraph break. And this is actually very helpful, because again, the, the, the angel is explaining the images. He says this, The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And in the next chapter, chapter 18, that phrase is used five different times. Babylon is the great city, the great city, that prostitute is the great city. I was in uh, St. Louis this week, and uh, when I was flying back Thursday night, I had a connecting flight in Chicago, and um, I guess we were flying out of O'Hare, I can't remember, but I guess it was out of O'Hare, and it was, it was we were just uh, on the runway at dusk, and by the time we got up in the air, it really became dark, and it was a clear winter night. In Chicago, and so, uh, and I happened to be on the left side of the of the uh, jet, and so we we were kind of heading toward the downtown, and then we banked and we started heading southeast, but the lights, all converging toward downtown Chicago, were just amazing, and it, it was high traffic time, so the interstates just looked like lava flow. So many people. And it all worked toward this bundle of skyscrapers, kind of like a, a forest of skyscrapers that were lit up at night and then behind it is just this sharp line and it's just black. You know, Lake Michigan. And when I, I just thought, you know, if you could bring someone forward in time from, you know, from when they didn't have electricity or electric lights, I think if they saw that, they might want to bow down and worship it. You know, it, it's incredible. Those used to just be fields and forests, but Cities have always been amazing places. Why? Well, first off, because it's a critical mass of the most important thing in creation, and that's human beings. We're the pinnacle of creation, not mountains, not galaxies. We are. And cities are a critical mass of human beings, but on top, or, or with that, comes what? It, it's, it's where human endeavors have been taken to the nth degree. Art, art, in business, and wealth building, in architecture. I love architecture. I don't know beans about architecture, but I love architecture. And Dana and I go on trips and she says, you're only photographing buildings. Take pictures of people and family. But I, I just, you know, Chicago, I just think that's fascinating. But the, the, the buildings, the music, the food, uh, ac- you find academia and higher learning in the cities. It takes it to the nth degree, and by the way, this is as relevant a time to talk about this as any because everything from uh, Foreign Policy magazine to The Guardian in England to The Economist to all kinds of kind of higherbrow newsy newsy uh, policy sort of uh, writings lately have talked about, the 21st century is not going to be the century of any particular nation. It's not really going to be the century that's owned by America or China or Brazil or Russia. It's going to be the century owned by cities. And think about this, that that one of the classics of Christian literature is by St. Augustine. And when he wanted to depict that there is this lifelong enmity and divide between God and and his enemies, between those who follow him and those who are at odds with him, how did he depict it? Did he depict it as the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man? No. The Christian classic is what? The city of God. But there's the city of man. Babylon is the city of man. And that's not fulfilled in any one city. It's its ness But what is that saying? that worldliness is like the best that there is. And that's not to say that people don't do amazing endeavors in the country and in small towns that they do. But the critical mass that just has a magnetic appeal is in the city. I did a Google search, just, just out of curiosity, of, of, a, of an exact phrase quotation marks around it, and I I said, I want to find places where people use this exact phrase. And the search was, quote, the city seduced me. And it pulled up a few hundred hits on Google. That's not that many, but what was interesting was how how many times it was from blogs. And people were talking about living in New York, or living in L.A., or they went to a city somewhere uh, in another country, And, and people, independently of one another, reached for this phrase, the city seduced me is interesting? And look how these images are brought together in one of these verses. You see in the middle there, chapter 18, verse 16, that verse that's just by itself. <clears throat> you remember it said Babylon, the prostitute, she's dressed in purple and scarlet and gold and jewels and pearls. Then it says what? This is someone who's mourning the destruction of Babylon. It's like a eulogy. And he says, Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels... And with pearls, it's like a a funeral song. But both those images are brought together. She's a prostitute, she's a city. Now, what is it she does to people? Remember, she drinks a wine. What's her wine? Her wine is the blood of martyrs. She drinks the wine, which is the blood of Christians being killed because they name the name of Christ. And she's drunk on it, as if to say that, that having that much power and having the sensibilities to shut this thing down called Christianity because it's going it's to mess up her project, having the power to do that, she's intoxicated with it. But that's not the wine that she gives. That's hers. What's the wine that she gives? And it talks about the wine of her sexual immorality. Now, you hear that description. You think, man, what is that? Because that sounds pretty bad. You're thinking this is just going to be the, the just the most perverted graphic. It's just going to be stuff we can't even say from the pulpit. And space did not allow, but if you read chapter eighteen, it describes her wine. And you know what it is? Business, work, wealth building, commerce and the accumulation of that which makes me comfortable. That's her wine. Y'all, I'm going to say this to you in the name of honesty and vulnerability. Um, No preacher can make you feel something or make something land in your heart. God has to do that. Uh, No matter how skilled a communicator, no no matter how manipulative a communicator, for something to land in your heart in a way in which it stays, God has to do that. And something about this text has has made me feel, and Jake and I were praying about this before the service, that, that what I'm about to say, God would have to make it land because it sounds so not dangerous. It sounds so not urgent for the danger of the urgency to land in our hearts, God would have to do that, and we're praying that He will. Here's what I want us to think about. When you hear this depiction of, here's this just kind of, this just captivating woman, just this high-end kind of hoochie mama, Babylon, there she is, and and she's dressed up, and, um, and she has this wine of abominations, and she offers it to the nations, and they drink it, and it's to their spiritual ruin. I I think for most of us, when we hear that, we just, you know, it feels like, I just don't think that's me. You know, like, that sounds like people who are billionaires, and they're on yachts in the Mediterranean, and they're taking whatever kind of high-end drug the rich people take, and they're joking about stupid Christians. I think it's for those people. I'm just like, I'm trying to pay bills, you know? And I'm just kind of trying to keep the trains running on time. I don't think I'm drinking of the cup of Babylon. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think about when you or I have one of those days where for all the days we have where it just seems like Murphy's Law is kicking in and we're just getting setback after setback and everything I'm trying to do, I'm just meeting with obstacles. But every once in a while we have a day, or maybe two or three of them, where we are hitting on all cylinders. And, uh, and, and that could look like different things that, that uh, maybe if you're married that, that you and your spouse are really clicking and, and it's happy for a change. Or you and a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you're clicking and it just doesn't feel like it takes heavy lifting. It feels like it's being just carried and it has a great momentum and life of its own. Or it's one of those days where, man, I got up this morning and I had this to-do list for my job and I am just running through them and I'm feeling better every time I strike one off and for a change, I feel like I'm hitting on all cylinders. Or it could be chores in the house. It could be responsibilities of parenting. But we have a day or we have a, a couple of days where we feel like things are going well. It tends to be the case for us that when we have days like that, that we are most prone to go long stretches where we do not feel the need to talk to God. We don't feel the need to repent daily and turn to Him and say, Have mercy on me. We don't feel the need to open this book and not just read words, but but to eat it. And the question I want to put before us this morning is, what if that is the wine? Because when that finally crystallized in my mind, that kind of frightened me. That, that, you know, if I'm not the person on the yacht in the Mediterranean with untold wealth who just hates Christians and flaunts my hatred of Christianity, but what if I'm the person... <clears throat> That, yeah, I, I profess to follow Christ, but, but what if I drink of this wine in the form of when I'm getting the work done that I want to get done, I don't need Him. That when I feel competent, I don't need to talk to Him. That when I feel like the workplace or the home or the project or the endeavor that just has consumed me, that things are going well and we're getting traction, that that's when the prayer closet or the Bible or gatherings of Christian Christians are most neglected because I am feeling that this deep craving is being met. Because that's something that doesn't look urgent. But from God's point of view, that is incredibly high-risk behavior to even go a short burst of time and just not need to talk to Him. To go even a short burst of time and not have to say, you know what, I'm not going to let my heart tell me what's true. I'm going to let Him tell me what is true. I'm not going to let my feelings tell me what's true. I'm not going to let my peers tell me what's true. But I'm going to let Him show me what is true. To even do that in short burst is high-risk behavior. And something that we we have said over the years is that when we come to texts that are especially challenging, it's helpful to ask two questions of a passage. You can ask this of any passage, but it's really helpful on the hard ones. What is this passage showing me about us who need redeeming? But what is this passage showing us about God who does the redeeming? Well, we just saw what it's showing us about us. That I have cravings that are so deep I, it, it is so deep that I need to feel productive. That I need to feel competent. That I need to feel <clears throat> like my life is achieving something. That I need to be liked. That I need to have these things. And it has crossed the line from want to need. That that's so deep that if I get it, if that itch is scratched... I'm in an altered state of consciousness where I don't need the God who made me or made the earth or made the comforts or made the work. Well, what are we seeing about God? What are we seeing about God? A couple of things here. The first is this. It is one of the glories of God that He hates the sins that we have grown accustomed to. Let me say that again. One of the glories of God is that he hates the sin that I have grown accustomed to. God makes war on the evil with which I have made peace. How does this text begin? The angel comes to John. He doesn't say, hey, let me show you this prostitute. What did he say? How does our text begin? Chapter 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, bowls of what? Bowls of the wrath of God, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. God wants John, and God wants the seven churches to which Revelation is written, and God wants the Holy Catholic Church today to see what? That one day He judges the world. And can you imagine how comforting this was for the original recipients? Because some of the people who read this book, they knew martyrs. And it might have been their children, their spouse, their friends. They might have ultimately been martyred or certainly knew that it was going on from Rome, at the hand of Rome. Think about how comforting it was to be shown Babylon just smug and wealthy and beautiful and powerful, and drunk on the ability to kill the opposition, to see she will be destroyed by fire. And it will be the power of God to take some of the people who followed her, or who trafficked with her, to turn on her and destroy her, and she'll burn forever. Isn't that weird that one of the things they're singing in heaven, you tend to think about them singing happy songs, that in chapter 19 one of the songs is... She's burning forever. Hallelujah. What is God showing to the early church? Hey, you know what? These people may kill you. You know, like the hymn says, God, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. And here's what you need to know. One of these days it's going to go down. And one of these days when it all hits the fan, somebody has to stay after school. And God in His justice... Will accomplish that. He'll do it just right. It will not be cruel, but it will be severe in its fairness and justice and holiness. But think about how we need to see that. Work and wealth and home and each other and love and music and possess those are all good gifts of God. They're from God. All the good architecture, all the good music, all the good literature, all the good thinking. Those are gifts from God. But when we give our hearts to it, and it becomes an affair. And I mean that in the way we typically use that word. When it becomes an affair, He hates that. And His judgment will fall on that. One Puritan said it this way, and this would be a Puritan who knew that God's going to remake the earth. Heaven will be the new earth. But he said this, build no nest in these trees, for the whole forest is condemned to burn. Does that mean I can't have a house? Can't have a mortgage? Does that mean I can't can't have... No, no, that's not what it's saying. It's saying don't fall in love with it. You will be in an altered state of consciousness you'll begin to think that it or those things can do for you things that only God can do. But the second thing is this. Because in some ways that's, that's bad news. Judgment is coming. But this is the good news. Let's see if I can be succinct. Babylon is a city. Babylon is a prostitute. She is worldliness. okay, when we say she's worldliness, are we, is she depicting something given to worldly people, or is she depicting worldly people? Do you understand the question? Is she depicting something that's given to worldly people, or is she depicting the worldly people themselves? And the answer is yes. Guess how Revelation ends. It ends where John has his last big vision. What's the last big vision? It's a city. It's coming down out of heaven. And it's clothed. Is it clothed in the the clothing of a seductress? No, it's clothed in what's the opposite of a seductress. It's clothed like a bride. Beautiful, radiant, in love when you see this vision at the end of Revelation, is that a depiction of something that's being given to God's people? Or is that a depiction of God's people? And the answer is yes. It's like totally great. And I, I, I try not to do this often, but the conclusion of this sermon is like the next five sermons. So if you could just make all of those, we would appreciate it. But I want to end by saying this. And I I mean that. I really want you to keep coming to hear if she's the counterfeit, what is God offering? And this is the note I want to end on. More, More to come. That if you love human endeavor, if you love work, if you love writing, if you love music, if you love thinking about how do you turn, you know, two pennies into ten pennies. If you love things like that, if it's fascinating to you, if you love academia, if you love architecture, if you love cities, you don't have to stop loving that. Just don't worship it. But the good news is that at the end, what Christ is offering us is the city that we really want. This is the downtown that you want. These are the sidewalks in the neighborhoods you want. This is the music and feasting and celebration that you want. These are the physical comforts that you want. Christ doesn't just come to take away our sin. Christ comes to secure that for us. But the road to that is suffering in this world. Not like we could. We all have pretty nice places to live and pretty good meals, pretty good health but Christ went the way of the cross to reach glory. In the 1st century church, in the 2nd century church, in the 21st century church, follow in His way that the way to glory in the heavenly city is to suffer now. And what that looks like is this. I will enjoy the good things that God gives me, but I will not make them my lover. And it's the bent of my heart to give itself away to my things or to romance or to possession or to achievement or to reputation or to a name for myself. The only lover who will give me what I ultimately want is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you don't know that you've given Him your heart, I would appeal to you to give Him your heart. I would appeal before this service is over to say to Him, just even where you're seated, have mercy on me and satisfy the cravings that I have but that nothing has ever fulfilled. Don't let me drink this wine anymore. But if you do know Him and you come to this table this morning, I want you to smell and taste this preview of the feast to come in the heavenly city where He is saying to us, I do love you. I'll give you above and beyond what you can hope or imagine. But in this fallen world, I want you to trust me and follow me and even to suffer. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, how we pray that um, that on the one hand we would be people who love our own city, our own Greenville, our own downtown, that we would love it with great mercy and, um, and deeds of mercy and deeds of justice and uh, remembering the names of our neighbors and praying for them and sharing life with them and contributing to what's good for not only ourselves, but for others in this city. We pray that we would have civic courage and love for our city. But Father, we pray that we would not have an affair with it. And that you would keep us from having an affair with our houses, or with our loved ones, or with our retirement accounts. Lord Jesus, take all of our hearts. Have it for your own, for the marriage to come. And we pray this in your name. Amen.